Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, one of the things that's been the most helpful to Tammy and I through COVID has been uh, Pastor Tyler, who those of you who know us know that in our family, he's Uncle Ty Ty. And uh, he has been so kind throughout all of COVID to take our kids overnight uh, a couple of times a month. And so it's a win for all of us, I think, except for him. But it's a win for our kids because he spoils them rotten. It's a win for Tam and I because we get to have like a stay in at home date night during such a long and difficult season. It's been so helpful throughout this this time. And so last weekend, uh, they had another epic sleepover. And just before Tammy and I were headed over to pick up the kids, I got a text from Tyler. And the text says, hey, hey, let me know when uh, when you're on your way because we're playing hide and seek. And when you get here, you have to find everybody. And so my, my first thought was like, this dude's like the best uncle ever. And, uh, and then I got there and I walked in and it was pitch black. I have been waiting two and a half months to hear Dee Dee laugh. I'm so <laughs> excited to hear her laugh again. So we walk in, I walk in, it's pitch black inside. And so I go up to Tyler and I'm like, hey, dude, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to find anyone in the dark? And he looked at me like I asked the dumbest question imaginable. And he goes, it's hide and seek. You you have to play it in the dark. Which I just have to say, I've been playing hide and seek for near 40 years. I've never played it in the dark. Am I alone? Like, raise a show of hands. Does anyone else, do you exclusively play hide and seek in the dark? Anyone? Okay, well, you're in the minority, weirdos. I gotta tell you. I think it's dangerous. I just think it's dangerous. I almost died like seven times trying to find my kids. Plus, it's like a million times more difficult in the dark than, in, than when the lights are on, which I guess is the point, but it's not safe. So, like between the dark and their amazing hiding spots, it, I, I could not find them anywhere, and it just got to the point where I was like, well, I guess they're yours now. I'm, now you're daddy, Ty Ty, because I'm out. I, they're gone. I hope you enjoy this. This is different than being an uncle. So, so here's why I want you to think about hide and seek for a second. I would argue that hide and seek is an apt metaphor for humanity's relationship with God. And by that I mean humanity is driven to hide from God and God is determined to seek us out. Now some of you might hear that statement and think, that I'm exclusively talking about people who uh, don't follow Jesus or people who intentionally seek to, to cut themselves off from God in some way. And what I would say is I am talking about that, but I also think this is such a massive part of what's happening in the lives of so many people who profess to follow Jesus. It is one of, if not the major reason, that so many of us are not experiencing anything resembling relationship and communion with God. Furthermore, it is not a new issue. In fact, it's as old as humanity itself. And so, I want to back up to the very beginning of the scriptures for the next couple of weeks in an attempt 
to get our heads and then our hearts around this critical issue. And so if you have a Bible this morning, open up to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 7 in just a minute, but everybody turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible this morning, totally okay. The scripture is going to be on the screen. Uh, We're going to call the next two weeks, the next two messages, part one and part two, hiding from God. Hiding from God. And while you're getting to Genesis chapter 3, let me just set this up a little bit because the opening chapters of Genesis tell the origin story of creation. And in this, there is endless debate about the nature of these verses. So there's this kind of debate and question around, do these verses tell the literal story of how God created the world or are these poetry and then science puts flesh on the proverbial bones of what we're reading here? And while I would never say those debates are not important, I would say it's so critical that we do not miss what is clear in the midst of what isn't. These verses tell us so much about God's heart toward us, and they shed so much light on the universal human condition. And so if you aren't familiar with these opening chapters of Genesis, here's what's happening. They tell the story of God creating an idyllic garden called Eden. And he then creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in that garden with two specific intents, connection and creativity. And in the same way, God created you and I for deep, meaningful, intimate connection with him and with one another. And God also created humanity to continue to cultivate and to create within the world he's entrusted to us. And so God gave Adam and Eve almost endless freedom within this garden, and just one protective command. They were not to eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He warned them that eating from this singular tree would sever them from the life-giving relationship God created them for, resulting in spiritual and physical death. And I think it's so important that we understand this because it teaches us something that we are prone to misunderstand about what the Bible calls sin, We're prone to see sin as nothing more than breaking rules. So we sin when we do what God says don't do, and we sin when we don't do the things that God tells us to do. And while sin absolutely involves the breaking of God's rules, it is even more about a breach in relationship with him. And that's what we see playing out in these opening verses of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2 ends in verse 25 saying both the man and the woman were naked yet felt no shame. So they were experiencing the very reality for which God created humanity. Connection with God and one another marked by innocence and intimacy. And tragically, all of this ends when we get to chapter 3. Adam and Eve unfortunately believe the lies of the serpent. They choose to eat from the one tree God warned them away from. And this breach in relationship changes everything. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story this morning. So look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. We'll read through uh, verse 11. The text says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, And made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, 
I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Now I want you to to back up again to verse seven and notice the tragic result of Adam and Eve's decision. Verse seven says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So that innocence that they had experienced in chapter 2, verse 25, of being naked and unashamed, that was gone. That feeling of, of comfort being totally exposed and completely vulnerable was no more. And in its place was a crushing, overwhelming sense of shame. And these verses teach us that shame is the single greatest barrier blocking our experience of intimacy with God and others. It's the single greatest barrier. Shame drives hiding, and hiding hinders relationship. That's what I would argue from these verses, that that shame, it drives hiding from God, from one another, and that hiding necessarily hinders relationship. And so I want to chat about shame for just a minute. Are you excited about that? I know you're all like, I really hope we talk about shame at church today. You're welcome. We're going to talk about it. Let's start with some definition, all right? In his uh, book, The Soul of Shame, Christian and psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson describes shame as the sense that there is something wrong with me. Uh, Researcher Brene Brown, who has given almost her entire professional career to studying shame in particular, defines it in her incredible book, Daring Greatly, like this. The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, the thing is, oftentimes we confuse the experiences of guilt and shame. And those two experiences are related, but they're distinct from one another. And so I want to help frame it and think about it like this. Guilt is the sense that I did something wrong. Does that make sense? So let's say you overtly, obviously, to your own knowledge, you sin against God, you do something he says not to do, you don't do something he says to do, maybe you sin against another person, and then you feel guilty because of what you did. That's guilt. Shame is different. Shame is the sense that I am wrong and I will be rejected if found out. You see the difference between those two? Guilt is attached to something that we do. Shame is attached to who we are. So the former is about behavior and the latter is about identity or condition. And studies have shown that while men and women are equally affected by shame, the manner in which we experience it as men and women tends to differ. And again, Brene Brown has done thousands of interviews with men and women asking them to describe shame. And I want you to listen to some of these descriptions so that you can see how different it is. This is how women that are surveyed tended to describe shame. Uh, Look perfect, do perfect, be perfect. Anything less than that is shaming. Being judged by other mothers is shaming. Being exposed, the flawed parts of yourself that you want to hide from everyone are revealed. Another woman said, no matter what I achieve or how far I've come, where I've come from, and what I've survived will always keep me from feeling like I'm good enough. 
Even though everyone knows that there's no way to do it all, everyone still expects it. Shame is when you can't pull off looking like it's under control. Never enough at home, never enough at work, never enough in bed, never enough with my parents. Shame is never enough. And so I wonder how many of you, men or women, but particularly women this morning, can relate to that. Now listen to the way that men describe shame. Shame is failure at work, on the football field, in your marriage, in bed, with money, with your children. It doesn't matter. Shame is failure. Shame is being wrong. Not doing it wrong, but being wrong. Shame is a sense of being defective. Shame happens when people think you're soft. It's degrading and shaming to be seen as anything but tough. Revealing any weakness is shaming. Showing fear is shameful. You can't show fear. You can't be afraid no matter what. Our worst fear is being criticized or ridiculed. Either one of those is extremely shaming. So in short, if we were to distill all of these various descriptions down to what are the primary experiences for men and women in, when it comes to this, this experience of shame, here's how we can distill this down. Women feel pressure to be perfect and, this is the key part, and not look like they have to work for it. Think about how jacked up that is. You have to be perfect. You have to get it all done on every front all the time, but you have to make it look effortless. You wonder why some of you are so tired. Might I submit to you, maybe it's living under the weight of that. Now men, the primary source of shame for men is being perceived as weak in any way. And so here's a significant challenge in all of this for all of us. When shame is the lens through which we perceive ourselves, everything that we experience has a way of reinforcing our shame. I'll give you an example of this. One of the most painful areas of shame that I've unearthed in my own life is this deeply felt sense that I am bad for people. Now you might hear that and think that's crazy, But oftentimes when we hear what causes one another shame, when we can look at it objectively, we go, well, that's crazy. But just because it's crazy and even inaccurate does not change the degree to which we feel something to be true. And so I live with that sense of I'm bad for people. It's complicated. It goes all the way back to my own childhood. But I constantly have to fight allowing that shame to color the way that I see everything in life. For instance, moving here to Utah was understandably difficult. Moving is always hard. Anyone that's ever moved, you know it's so difficult to adjust to a new place and new people and all of that. It's normal for people to struggle when they move to a new place. But for me, when Tammy or when my kids would have hard days or hard weeks upon moving here, I internalized all of their struggle as one more example of how I was bad for them. Their struggle was my fault. And many of you know we had a group of friends that moved here with us. And every time they've struggled or they've had a hard time on any front, I've internalized that and it reinforces this shame script that I'm bad for people. See, when shame is the lens through which we perceive ourselves, everything has a way of reinforcing it. 
And what we see playing out here in Genesis 3 is far more shame than it is guilt. They didn't feel guilty because of what they'd done. They felt shame because of what they were. They were naked. What's fascinating to me about this story is that nothing in their outward condition changed. It's not like in the beginning of Genesis 3 they were comfortably clothed, and then someone came along and stripped them naked, and and then all of a sudden they felt shame. They'd always been naked. But because of sin, something broke internally. It's like their souls were torn in two, and that peace that they had once known was gone. The security that they had enjoyed, gone. The trust that they'd felt, gone. The harmony that they had experienced was gone. And all that was left was this consuming sense of shame. And in response to it, they did what we all do when we are consumed by shame. They tried to hide. And notice that they, they started by trying to hide the very source of their shame. Verse 7 continues saying, They sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Right? So they felt shame because they were naked, so they tried to cover themselves to take away the source of that shame. The problem is, this act was, that was meant to cover shame also had the effect of blocking them from the oneness or the intimacy they once experienced. And furthermore, I want you to see how shame has this like compounding effect. Because verse 8 says, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So it starts with just like a, a physical covering. Now they've gone all the way to physically hiding themselves from God. And when I was young, I used to always find this part so humorous. Like who on earth tries to hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God? But you know, the older I get, and the more aware of my own shame I become the more heartbreaking I find this story. It's an agonizing picture of desperation. And when God calls out to Adam, which we're going to focus more on next week, I want you to notice how Adam's response reveals the condition of his heart and mind. Because notice, God says, where are you? Where are you? It's a super simple question. Adam's response, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Think about that for a second. Like, number one, it doesn't even answer the question God asked. God asked about his location. Adam answers with his condition. Number two, Adam doesn't say, I was afraid that I was going to be in trouble because I broke your rule. He's afraid because he's naked. He's not guilty because of something that he's done. He feels shame because of who and what he is. And if you keep reading, the hiding does not end in the trees. Even when Adam finally steps out from where he's hidden, he immediately gets defensive and he hides behind blame, the way we all do. If you've ever had a moment that you can reflect on with a spouse or with a friend where something that was said or done triggers this like shame thing inside of you, oftentimes we get very defensive very fast. And that's exactly what we see Adam do. He immediately begins to blame God. And that's my favorite part. And then he blames Eve. He's kind of like, uh, well, God, this woman you gave me. So he's blaming God, but he's also blaming her. She, she, she kind of made me do this. It's like the all-time low moment for Adam in this story. 
but all of it is him functioning out of his own shame. There's no sign of contrition. This is in no way confession of his sin. There's no sign or attempt at repentance. All of that requires vulnerability and humility, and Adam is caught up in this shame storm, and so he hides. See, shame fundamentally shifts our instinct when it comes to God and it comes to one another. The deepest longing we possess is one for connection. It's the ache for intimacy that we talked about in week one, first with God and then with one another. And shame attacks that longing like a virus, bombarding you with the unconscious or the conscious sense that if you are known, If you are known or if you are seen for who you truly are, you will be abandoned, you will be rejected, and then your deepest fear will be realized because you will be alone. And that was Adam's fear. If God sees me in my nakedness, he will reject me. And so as a result, he hides. And humanity has been hiding ever since. And so let me just say this again. Shame drives hiding, and hiding hinders relationship. See, here's the irony in all of this. Shame drives us away from the very remedy for it. It drives us to hide because shame thrives in the shadows. But here's the good news. John 8, 12 Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And when Jesus stepped into human history, shame ceased to be safe. He came to seek and to save those who were lost in shame. Our challenge is, we always want everything to happen in a moment But you know, almost everything good happens in process. Shame does not disappear in a moment. Wouldn't that be great? Put your faith in Jesus, you get baptized, you come up out of the water, all your shame's gone forever. It doesn't work like that. So what we have to learn to do is to live in open, honest vulnerability with God and each other. And as we take that courageous step, something amazing begins to happen. When we begin to open up about not feeling like we're enough, shame loses ground in our minds and intimacy with God grows. When we begin to open up about areas of hurt and weakness, shame loses its grip on our hearts and intimacy with God and others increases. Every time I read Genesis 3, I have always been so focused on the massive mistake that was the sin of Adam and Eve. But you know what I have not been able to shake this week? I would argue that the only mistake that rivals their sin is their response to it. Their sin was tragic. Our sin is tragic. But allowing shame to have the final word over the grace offered to us by Jesus, I'm telling you, that's worse. We can run to God in our shame, or we can run from him. That's the choice we have. 
The thing is, we've all tried the latter, and it doesn't do anything than drive us deeper and deeper into a shame tsunami. So why don't we try the former for a while? Next week, we're going to focus our attention on God's response to their shame and ours. But let me just give you a little spoiler here at the outset. You can never bring anything to God he can't handle. You know what the one thing is that God's never been? Surprised. There's never been a time where something happened or someone sat with God in an honest moment to tell him about something they were thinking or feeling and God was like, wow, did not see this one coming. That's the one thing God's never experienced is surprise so he can handle whatever it is. And most importantly, he already knows the worst that you have done. And listen, he already knows the worst that has been done to you. And still, and still, with that knowledge, God calls you out of hiding this morning. And so will you step out into the light and begin the process of inviting God into your shame. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a kind, generous, loving, merciful God. And we thank you, Lord, that despite our attempts to hide from you and to run from you, that you are a God who pursues. And so we thank you that you have pursued us in our sin, and you have pursued us in the sin that has been committed against us. And you sent your perfect son, Jesus, to live, to die, and to rise again, to begin that process of eradicating shame from our souls. And so, Lord, we, we want to begin this process of stepping out from the places that we hide, where our shame thrives in the shadows. We want to step out into the light and begin to experience healing and freedom in those places. But it takes great strength and it takes great courage. And so we need your help for this. So would you meet us in that place? Would you help us to answer your call to come out of hiding and to run to you this morning rather than from you? We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.